Blog Talk Radio. Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Mission Unstoppable. Mission Unstoppable. The unstoppable ones. You did say unstoppable, right? You did say unstoppable, right? What is it they know that I don't? Coach Frankie Picasso takes you on Mission Unstoppable. Anyone stop these people? Good evening, and I am the Unstoppable Coach Frankie Picasso, and tonight we are going on another Mission Unstoppable with a man I see as the voice of light and love for people with different ways. He's a pioneer, a visionary, and a spiritual champion, and I see him as a blessing for the parents of children on the autism spectrum and a just-in-time angel who seeks to passionately transform perceptions of autism from those defined as afflicted sufferers to, do, to those with valuable gifts to offer the world. So just stay tuned and stay close. I'll be right back with my guest this evening, William Speakman. This is the Unstoppable Coach, Frankie Picasso. You are listening to Mission Unstoppable. The time in Toronto is 8 p.m., six in Los An- 5 in Los Angeles, I should say, and 8 a.m. in Beijing if you're following the Olympics. I want to thank Blog Talk Radio for allowing me to broadcast over their network, and I want to thank you, you know who you are, for tuning in to me each and every week and making it such a joy to bring you the Unstoppable Ones. I have the phones open, the chat room is open as well, so feel free to write or call in if you have any questions. Hi, Holly, thanks for saying hi in there, and DK Guitarman, thanks, and uh, hello to you too. William Speakman is a nationally recognized autism self-advocate, speaker, and author of numerous special needs parenting publications and books, including the Everything Parents Guide to Children with Asperger's Syndrome, Help, Hope, and Guidance, Demystifying the Autistic Experience, Autism and the God Connection, and my favorite, The Soul of Autism. I think he is an emissary sent from heaven to teach the world that love comes in many forms and miracles and surprises make up this world. Please welcome William Stillman. Good evening, William, and welcome to Mission Unstoppable. Good evening. My gosh, that's quite an introduction and um, no pressure there (laughs) to live up (laughs) to those expectations, my Lord. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, you've done this a thousand times, and and, and you're just so amazing. Listen, I have to ask you something. It might be a little bit tough to hear. Uh, hello to everybody who's joined us in the in the chat room. Or um, thanks for for joining. And if you want to call in, the number six four six five nine five three seven four one. Okay, William, this is a toughie. You have a BS in education from Millersville University in Pennsylvania, and you have worked to support people with different ways since 1987. In fact, you were formerly the statewide point person for children with intellectual impairment, mental health issues, and autism. Okay, so here's a toughie. Please tell us, as an adult with Asperger's Syndrome yourself, how in the world did it feel when you went to work every day at the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Department of Public Welfare Office of Mental Retardation? Well, that is a tough question, and it was actually doing the work that I was doing in that office and beginning to explore autism that I befriended people who identified themselves as being diagnosed with autism. And the more that I got to know them and let down my guard and dismantle some of my own barriers, the more I realized that I absolutely had so much in common with them. And I knew that I wasn't autistic, but I knew we had those commonalities. And one of my friends said, do you know about Asperger's syndrome? And at the time, I had never heard of it. Um, And she explained it as sort of a a milder version of uh, more uh, classical autism and described some of the symptoms. And I I looked up the clinical definition and sort of crosswalked that with a, a list of all of the things that I knew to be true about myself. And it made so much sense. It made sense of my life. And so I I really struggled then with this self-revelation with the the dichotomy of what it was I was doing in the job. And I actually came out to my two immediate supervisors and 
you know, they really didn't know what to do with the information at the time. Um, and so it wasn't much longer after that that I made the decision to leave um, in order to pursue the work that I'm doing now, which is, is freelance work. Has that, has that department changed its name today? It has. Um, it is now the um, Office of Developmental Programs. Um, I'm not sure how much more palatable that is, but, um, you know, I think oftentimes state government can be such um, archaic systems in so many ways and um, not as innovative or as progressive as we would wish it to be. But there is now a Bureau of Autism Services um, in that department as well. Well, when you talk about um, Asperger's syndrome and and the spectrum and autism and and what, what falls in that spectrum, like well, what could people expect? It, the spectrum is clinically called pervasive developmental disorders. Um, so, outside of a clinical discussion, I don't use the word disorder because I think it's really disrespectful. But there are five currently defined experiences on that spectrum. Um, what's called autistic disorder, which is autism, Asperger's disorder, which is Asperger's syndrome, um, Rett's disorder, childhood disintegrative disorder. How's that for disrespectful? Yeah, great. Isn't that something? And um, <laughs> finally, pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. And um, with the exception of Asperger's, um, the other experiences relate to um, developmental delays of some sort, largely with regards to um, communication, um, articulating or vocalizing, verbalizing speech, um, challenges with fine and gross motor skills, repetitive actions and activities um, that could even be vocalization. Um, what's called proprioception, sort of a, a, a feeling of disconnect of your body and limbs in space and, and so on. And, um, and with Asperger's, the difference is we have some of those things, but there's no developmental or cognitive delays, which is why a lot of us fall through the cracks uh, and go unnoticed. And I tell people all the time, I meet a lot of adults on the autism spectrum who are likely Asperger's, and they are the parents of the children with autism for whom I'm consulting. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. But they would sound, I mean, there was a marked rise in autism, Dr. Leo Kanner, the father of mild, uh, child psychiatry. Mm -hmm. um, about 15 years ago, I think he said, he, he found 150 cases that were brought to him worldwide, and yet today in North America alone there are over half a million cases. Now, And that's just children. Yeah, and just children. So what, what right. accounts for the sudden rise? I mean, it's not supposed to be hereditary, is it? Well, there is definitely a genetic component to it, um, in, okay. in my opinion, and I think there's been research done around that. Um, that's the question, is what's going on? Why is this happening? Um, when I first began exploring autism um, as it pertained to myself, um, and that's going back, gosh, about 12 years or so, um, you know, when I was in my, my mid-30s, um, it was only when I realized it in myself. Um, so I had come all of that time um, blaming myself for my shortcomings and my idiosyncrasies and my social aloofness. Um, and I think that one of the contentions is that we are uh, improving um, our diagnostic awareness of autism. And I, I can certainly reflect on people that I've known and worked with um, in the human services field, you know, over 20 years ago, who were labeled as um, mentally retarded, but who in hindsight were clearly autistic. So part of the contention is, are we just getting better at making the diagnosis? But then we also have um, lots of other theories. Um, prominent among those are, you know, reactions to childhood vaccinations, and, and does that induce autism? And are the children who become so extremely violently ill and, and regress after receiving vaccines, is that really the same thing as autism? And um, lots of other theories. There's at least a dozen theories. But what's curious to me is what are the odds that all of those very diverse theories are manifesting in identical symptoms? 
Um, so back when I began learning about autism, uh, the the statistic of instant incidents was one in ten thousand children. That was just children, mm-hmm. and then it jumped to one in five hundred. Um, within the past couple of years, it was one in one hundred and sixty-six. It's now Incredible. one in one hundred and fifty, and one in ninety-four boys. And wow. um, I'm going to predict that in the next five to ten years, it's going to jump to one in ten children. And, and boys more 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 than girls. four four times more than females. Mm-hmm. Again, for reasons unknown. And what I think people don't realize is that this is not a United States phenomenon. This is worldwide. This is occurring. Um, I saw a statistic in the UK. I think it's one in a hundred children. In Ireland, it was one in a hundred and ten. Um, it's estimated that there are one and a half million people in the United States, children and adults, on the autism spectrum, and that's num- that number is comparable to what's going on in China. So it's a worldwide phenomenon that's occurring. I mean, something just hit me as you said that, and and you know, I'm sure it has nothing to do with it, but just the instance of you know something being entirely male, like hemophilia affects men, more, you know, not women. Is there is there anything in the gene that, that suggests that there's a male um, chromosome or something missing or something different? There is research into that, and again, um, it's not really my forte because my focus is not what causes autism, right. but rather what autism causes. Right, <laughs> and right. I, I, I think there's, a, I know this is going to be difficult for some people to hear, but I think that there's a great beauty and a grace to what can come of the relationships when we must undergo a transformation in perception. Of, yeah, I, I really want to talk about of that. Of individuals. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I really want to get to that. But first, before we get to that, I think that we need to work our way up to it just a little bit. And so can we talk about um, how... Autism affects one's ability to communicate in ways that are effective and reliable, and and like your mantra is to always presume intellect. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, well, how difficult is that? Is that presumption for the parents and caregivers that you meet on a daily basis? I think it's uh, I think it's very challenging for some parents and caregivers to um, to see the wisdom of of that concept because of what they've been led to believe is true about their children um, by either doctors who have portrayed uh, a very dismal prospect for the future, who maybe have been insensitive in breaking uh, the news to families. And I think also that gets uh, reinforced by the media, Uh, certainly not your program, but by certain um, news outlets that really insist on making this out to be uh, a tragic and use words like affliction and sufferers and so on. And that just reinforces the shame and the guilt that so many people feel when they've been led to believe that autism equals some sort of severe um, intellectual impairment. And it's the opposite, really. Um, and we need to re-envision it in the way that we do the same for the person with cerebral palsy or Parkinson's or Tourette's or Hodgkin's or Lou Gehrig's or any of those conditions in which the neurology is, is impacted and it creates those motor control blips and misfires and disconnects. And one of the analogies that I like to use, Frankie, that I think people can really relate to is if you've ever awakened in the middle of the night and you realize that your arm fell asleep from the elbow down because how you've you've slept on it. And so it's essentially dead weight, and your brain is willing that limb to move, and it simply will not stir of its own accord. And what if that that experience arbitrarily shifted to any number of your body's limbs or really lodged in your voice box, and you didn't have a reliable control over that or what that felt like, and so you'd be forced to engage in this repetitive, um, almost twilight zone version of charades all day long, trying to get people to see that you're in there um, yeah. and, and you're alive and intelligent and your mind is racing with all sorts of things. And they're, you know, they're giving you um, little golden books and strawberry shortcake uh, picture puzzles and you know Disney videos, and you're an adult with. <laughs> 
right, with right. so much more going on inside. You know, can you imagine? You know, it, it's really hard to imagine. And I, I once interviewed um, a guy on my show, a gentleman, uh, Robin Shepard, who who had Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, and it paralyzed him for about three and a half weeks, totally paralyzed him except for his eyes. It's the only thing that, that, that worked in his head. And, you know, trying to tell people everything with his eyes was, you know, he was dead, in, like he was really dead to the world. And it was so, it was he was imprisoned. His book was called Solitary Confinement. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's like, isn't it? Well, one you know, of the for, things, for of one of the things that I do in my presentations is I ask the audience, let me see a show of hands of anyone who's ever lost their voice for an extended period of time. And, you know, some hands go up and then I say, okay, longer than three days longer than a week, longer than two weeks, and, you know, hands start going down more and more. And sometimes there's there's a, a person left sitting with their hand in the air who's lost their voice for, you know, a month or longer. And we talk about that, and we talk about how did that feel? Well, irritable, frustrated, depressed, upset, and were people um, second-guessing your wants and needs? Yes. Um, how often were they correct? Rarely. Um and what if that month became six months or a year, and, and what would that do to um, how you were feeling? And were people starting to talk about you in front of you? And yes, and it, I mean, it gets it leads to a really interesting dialogue. No kidding. I mean, and, and really all we need to do is, is to take a look at Stephen Hawkins, who is, has to be one of the most brilliant minds of, of the century, and yet his body is, is you know, masking that Thank brilliance you. If, if he wasn't able to speak. Let's, it is. Um, it's a masquerade. It's really a masquerade. Um, and, and people are, I mean, if we can think about it more in a, in a holistic or spiritual perspective, it's, it's, we're wearing costumes. And um, people who appear to be the most severely impaired among us may actually be our greatest teachers. We have a caller. Uh, 774, you're on air. Hello there. Uh, yes, hi, Coach Vacasso. Uh, hi. Uh, this is Russ. Russ, um, hi. Can you just turn your radio down a little bit or your computer yes. down, your volume? Okay, w- one moment. No, sure. Can you turn that down a little? Thank you. I didn't know it could right. pick up that, that uh, clear. Yeah. Uh, oh. To ask a question. Now, this is the first time that um, I'm understanding this, this, what you call it, a disease? Well, it, no, it's not a disease. It's not a disease. It's a neurological difference, Russ. Oh, oh, oh. Friend, a cold, a cold wife, uh, his oh, wife. Somebody's pressing their buttons or something? I'm sorry? Somebody's pressing buttons on a phone or something. It's a little annoying. Okay, let's see if we can hear you again. Okay. I have a friend who, uh, his wife has this problem, and he before but um Asperger's but I didn't know what it what it is and uh, this was someone that was uh you know a writer she wrote scripts for for a hospital uh we made a lot of uh, public service announcements and, and documentaries for doctors and what happened was uh she started to have this problem for I guess the last 10 years and uh she doesn't go out she stays sensitive. Sometimes in the backdrop I can hear her. I heard her once kind of uh, screaming out uh, 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 to her husband. Um, she's like very, very sensitive. You know, she doesn't want him to leave the house. She did part of the symptoms. I apologize for that beeping. I, 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 we might have missed something through the beeping. I'm not sure why we're having that strange beeping sound. But, You're getting um, beepings? Yeah. yeah getting be- are you getting it? You're getting it too. It was you, making uh, it really challenging to hear you, Russ. Um, it was I choppy. Think yes. No, I, it was like a it's like a phone. Somebody pressing the button on a phone for a very long time. I, I think you what you're that. what you're describing, Russ, is something that is not Asperger's syndrome, because Asperger's syndrome is not something that would have only developed in recent times for this person. It would have been something that would have been a lifelong way of being. And I didn't really clarify when I said with Asperger's, we have no developmental or cognitive delays as children, but where we really struggle is um, in social awareness, understanding people and how they work, um, reciprocity in relationships, 
how to initiate a friendship and how to sustain friendships and and follow um, social conventions and expectations and mores, um, understanding humor and um, oftentimes we do have very strong passions and areas of interest, and we tend to focus on those and talking about those. So that's that's um, a lay person's perspective of Asperger's, and what you're describing in your coworker's wife sounds like something um, very different. Mm. You also mentioned that that you're very sensitive, like emotionally very sensitive, and and um, to the, what goes on around you emotionally sensitive and also um, have sensory sensitivities as it relates to all of the senses. And um, that's a commonality that I have with people with autism. So things that you can filter out um, or don't even think about, um, I'm constantly absorbing because I don't filter out anything. I'm like a sponge. I'm soaking everything up and very little escapes my attention. And it can be exhausting and at times really painful. Hmm. Did you have any other questions, Russ? Uh, no, no. I think uh, I'm going to listen a little bit longer and, uh, and hear, what, uh, hear what you're saying and try to understand it. But uh, thank you. Thank you, and I, thank you, and I would encourage you to continue listening thank you. because at the rate of the statistics, um, if you don't know someone with autism now, you certainly will. Okay. Thanks so okay. much. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Let me just see if I can hang this up. Okay. Um, William, you said in your book that many parents tell me that their child's diagnosis is a, is a death sentence. Some are deeply embittered or resentful of the child's autism and the confusing, sometimes violent behaviors that may ensue. Now, I can understand, you know, every every parent, thanks to you, Russ, he's in our, our chat room thanking us for the call. I can understand how a parent, you know, we all hope that our children be quote-unquote normal, right. fit in, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, that's what we all hope and pray for over those nine months. Um, but it doesn't always happen, and, and, and like you said, the there's a good. There may be a very good reason why their why their child is born with you know autistic ten- tendencies. So, what do you want to say to these parents? Well, uh, about you know, the death sentence part. Uh, I think it's really a matter of attitude, and I understand that there's a grieving process that that a lot of people go through, um, particularly if you're a mother and you're carrying that fetus for nine months, and you, if you know the sex, and you start to envision. Um, what kind of life it will be for that child. And I think that I'm not a parent, but I could speculate respectfully that every parent wants to have a healthy child and worries about that and so on. And then, you know, um, a God or life um, throws you that curveball quite unexpectedly. And I think uh, how you cope with that um, depends upon the type of personality that you are. are. Do you see the glass half full or half empty? Mm-hmm. Um, are you going to um, complain and, and wallow in self-pity? Or are, you, are you going to accept the challenge and rise to the occasion um, with grace and humility? Or do you fall somewhere in between? So I, I really think it depends upon the type of person. But again, I think a lot, I've worked with some terrific doctors, but there are some clinicians who are very insensitive. And then we have the media who is um, reinforcing it and seems to always pick up on uh, exaggerating the the most tragic of circumstances, and those send really negative messages to parents. Um, last fall, I made a presentation in Los Angeles to uh, about 200 exclusively Spanish-speaking parents, and when I stood up before them, and I had interpreters, and I started speaking about how gorgeous their children are and that they have great gifts. Uh, to offer the world and that they're entitled to the space that they occupy and there are no mistakes. Um, People were sobbing. I mean, grown men just buried their heads in their hands and afterwards, you know, people rushed up and wanted to touch me and take my picture and gave me photographs of their children and wanted my autograph and it it, it was um, embarrassingly overwhelming and I thought to myself, my Lord, what who what are these people being told about their children right, right who is telling them anything otherwise about their children there there was such a an overwhelming sense of shame and guilt that they were expressing and they were so grateful 
to have someone contradict that. Of course they were. Now, you just wrote recently, um, we portrayed autism as so complex and complicated that we've disempowered parents from parenting. We've supplanted their ability to develop a relationship with their own children by dictating that professional, previously a stranger to the child, is solely qualified and required to be so to interact with their child for hours on end. So what you're saying is we've taken away the parent's natural parental love and ability to, to, to know their own child. I mean, a mother knows the, the, the ten different cries that her baby, you know, has. You know exactly what they're crying for. And yes. yet, you know, we say, well, you're not qualified to look after this child. This person's going to come in and do it for you. Well, uh, you know, there's that great danger of slipping into that mode. And let's be clear, uh, autism is very much an industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry that's still very much in its infancy, and it's yeah, only okay. going to get bigger and bigger. And I mean, look at the statistics so and where statistics, they're going. Yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah. I, I think that there's a tremendous danger in sending the message to parents that you are ill-equipped to interact with your child, and you have to bankrupt yourself, or divorce, or move to another state, or renovate your basement into a therapy room. Um, in order to have a, a meaningful relationship with your child, I think that's nonsense. Um, and and you know people are paying up to fifty thousand dollars a year for oh therapies God. and treatments and so on. Um, and there's so much more that they could be doing um, in terms of connecting with or relating to their child. I think the very best therapy is one that does not supplant the parent but instead empowers the parent with um, ideas and strategies and techniques and imparts good information and then fades out. You know, you once told me uh, there's two common phrases that you hear all the time. What are they from these children? What are the the two most common phrases? when people connect with me one-on-one, yeah. um, there are two things that I hear most often. The first is, um, I love you, which I think is so selfless yeah. of someone to say to me upon first meeting me um, when there are so many things that they could say pertaining to their own wants and needs, but instead they say, I love you. And I think that's because they you know, I'm the autism whisperer. <laughs> right. You know, I think you are the autism whisperer. They, and not only that, but wait, they say I love you, and, and not only do they say something that they could say, but what about they rarely speak. And so to say anything at all is a humongous, you know, event. They say I love you, and then they also say I'm not retarded. And I always say, I know, I see you. I see you. Yeah. And I see how smart you are. And my job is to not retarded. I just to, want to make you know re-emphasize that I love you and I'm not retarded. Yeah. Can we and look I, past the car that they drive, the shell, their body, and and look inside? Look past the physical. Yeah. yeah. And I let them know. You know, not only do I see them in there, but uh, I'm not there for them. My job is to help everybody else around them see how how beautiful and smart they are in the way that I do. That's my job. And 90% of my work has absolutely nothing to do with the, the individual with autism. You know, it's so amazing that when, you know, when I read your book, and I love your books, and you have such an incredible talent for writing, and I especially love the autism and the God connection and the soul of autism. Thank I, you. I encourage anybody to rush out and get these books. I, as I was saying to, to William, I, I don't have a connection with anybody with autism. I don't have children with autism. I don't know anybody with autism yet. You know, I, I'm just so... Um, incredibly blown away by by his books and, and, and his spirituality and, and how he feels that, you know, these children are here uh, for us. They're, they're here that maybe help, you know, heal the world. And I think we're going to get to that in just a moment. Um, we have a little bit more to, to maybe teach you or tell you before we, 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 we throw that one on you. But um, hopefully you'll yeah. stick around and listen to the, and listen to the rest of the show. Yeah, my spiritual you, books are. I mean, there's a caveat that comes with that. They're not for everyone. Yeah. Uh, and and there's a caution there. Uh, there's some pretty far out stuff in there, and maybe we'll touch upon it. Maybe we won't. But um, I hope to. Yeah, it, it's you know I think if you have an open mind and an open heart, then um, you know take a look. You talk about um, three miracles. Mm-hmm. In in your book. Um, the first miracle 
is is having the parent see their child? Is that the first miracle? Really, the first miracle that? is self-reflection, and that is acknowledging that you've been wrong. You've been wrong. You've been sold a bill of goods about who your child is, and if you presume the intellect, then you see past the physical, and you believe that your child is competent at their chronological age or beyond that. And so self-reflection is confessing that um, you're the one who needs to transform and change, not the other way around. Um, the second miracle, then, is to seek forgiveness. And you would do that by just approaching your loved one privately and gently and respectfully and confessing your ignorance. And that need not have negative connotations. You can only know what you know until you know differently or better. Um, right. and, and ask to be forgiven. Say that you're sorry and that you apologize and, uh, for being unpresuming of intellect or having done or said things about that person in front of them, um, believing that they were unaware. Um, and now you know different. Um, and there's a great power in doing that. And there's been amazing transformations that have occurred in relationships as a result of that that process. And then the third miracle is to perpetuate that message. It's not okay. It's not enough that it's just between you and your loved one. You've got to reach other people and get this message out there. And it's never too late, is it? I mean, you have a wonderful story, number of wonderful stories in, in The Making of Miracles um, in, in your book, Autism and the God Connection. And, and one that I really loved was um, Debbie, the mother of a, of a teenage son, mm-hmm. Scott, who mm-hmm. um, at 14 years of age, I think he was, when she finally said, you know, I'm, I, I'm sorry for, mm-hmm. you know, what I've done to you. I'm sorry how I thought about you. I apologize. And, yes. and you know, a, a child who's never really spoken. And he spoke. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, said, you're so sweet. He said, you're mom. so sweet, Mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, how incredible. Doesn't that make you want to cry? Doesn't mean I mean, it's just so beautiful well, that know, your hearts are so open and so full of love, and and yet, you know, all they in in real terms they've been mistreated and misjudged. Misjudged. And, and, and yeah. I can still remember the day that she came up to me. It was the the morning of a second day of a two day presentation, and the first day I was talking about this the three miracles and and how to enact it, and she went home and did it. And she's she's standing there telling me the story and how he sat there and he listened to her and she made her little speech. And when he had finished, he cocked his head and he smiled and he said, you're so sweet, Ma. And her face was bright red and, and Frankie and tears were streaming down her cheeks. And I was thinking to myself inside, you know, this is lovely, but, you know, lady, get a grip on yourself. Yeah, and she said, yeah. you don't understand. He, does, he doesn't talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's not it's a nice. Amazing. That's not an isolated incident. No, I mean you've got so many of them it's in not. here. It's beautiful. It's just so beautiful, you know, what you're doing and how you're the bridge. You really are. You're like a bridge connecting the parent and the child. Um, well, that's sweet world, of you. That's sweet of you to say. Thank you. Great. No, I think it's the truth. Um, yeah, I want to talk about what happened to you and what happens to a number of of these kids. Um, I guess around the same age that it would happen to almost any child, mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. Uh, in teenage years, uh, about yeah. wanting to commit suicide. Yes. And how can a parent look for that? And how can they? What What would you know be the signs? Well, I mean, a lot of kids, at, at, you know, thirteen, fourteen, do want whether they have autism, Asperger's, or whatever, they think about suicide. It, you know, it's a really difficult age, and. I think it's compounded more so by being inherently gentle and exquisitely, intensely, painfully sensitive in so many respects. And I have yet to meet anyone on the autism spectrum who has not been significantly depressed. And I think it's extremely common in those of us who are exquisitely sensitive. I start looking for it starting at age 10, 11, 12 and up. Um, Because that is the age when more than ever, I think people are becoming more conscious and aware of being different or are being made to feel different by others. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of bullying, perhaps, that goes on uh, on the part of peers. Um, You know, into adolescence, that's the age when more than ever before people become a little more sophisticated and judgmental and form cliques. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very tough age. Um, and I think parents need to be absolutely vigilant and aware of the symptoms of 
anxiety and depression and post-traumatic stress disorder and not misinterpret things as being a function of quote-unquote autistic behavior, to know the difference between um, how your child typically conducts him or herself and legitimate symptoms of a mental health issue um, that I also see as oftentimes hereditary in families as well. What, um, because there, there is autism, but along with that, there are other, other um, I, I, don't know, I don't want to call them diseases because they're not, but, but other mental maybe disorders or, or um, they don't always just have straight autism. There could be other things that go along with it that, that may or may not present themselves within these kids. Well, um, I do think that um, we, being so gentle, have a tendency to be predisposed to anxiety, depression, um, bipolar disorder I see quite a bit, um, and post-traumatic stress disorder for being so painfully sensitive. We cannot snap out of it, buck up, get over it in reaction to things that the average person may be able to. I mean, that stuff lingers with us sometimes for years. And I think what I want our listeners to know, too, is that um, people like myself, we think in pictures and movies, constant streams of imagery. And so there are um, pleasing movies that we record and store in the film vault of our minds, but then uh, around those slights or offenses or abuses, we record those movies also, and that doesn't mean we want to. And they sometimes play not of our volition, and that can really um, preclude us from being successful. Wow. The You talk about the, um, in some cases, the repetitive behavior is really a way to to stop the sensory you know, all these things coming at you at once. It's, Absolutely. It's like the filter, it filters. Absolutely. It's the filter, mm-hmm. all this information, all this stuff coming at them. So Absolutely. And people well. people digress into referring to it as autistic stimming or self-stimulation. And I suggest that we adopt a more respectful language, and that is to refer to those repetitive actions as a self-soothing or a self-regulating technique, because it really does have a purpose. And what we're talking about is the person who will flap their hands um, or flicker their fingers or twirl uh, a Tupperware lid or uh, flick a light switch on and off or twist a a faucet at the sink over and over again. And these are some of these common um, autistic activities that get uh, degraded as stimming when in fact it's a way of maintaining control through the safety of the sameness of the action over and over. It's the same every time when everything around us is unpredictable and becoming undone. And it's being used by people who want to maintain control so they don't lose it. And what I tell my audiences is, hey, you do this too. Yeah. You you flap your hands and flicker your fingers. It just looks like the times when you sit there and you're shaking a leg. Right, or twirling or you're, your hair. You're twirling your hair or you're tapping a pencil or whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and we see that. That's very common. But what I really kind of um, got got engaged with was the notion that the, the repetitive behavior um, was likened to this meditative state. Well, that's taking it a little a step further then, isn't it? Yeah. Right. And yeah. Uh, can you can you just tell us a little bit about that cuz I I'm sure I can't explain it properly. Well, <laughs> I <understand> it. <laughs> I I think, you know, if you want to make that leap in terms of a, a a spiritual discussion, there are people of a high religious standing that engage in Um, very similar activities, and it's called a mantra. It's either a vocalization or a a repetitive movement over and over again. And I make a slide presentation um, in in which I show a a girl with autism who's dancing and flapping her hands, um, and I say, okay, what's the difference between this? And then next slide is an image of the Sufi dervishes, the the Turkish dervishes. (laughs) Um, whirling, the whirling dervishes, oh, yeah. the whirling dervishes um, spinning over and over. And they're doing that to attain 
um, the rep- the rep- repetition of the motion to attain a, a, a new spiritual plateau. They're doing it deliberately. The person with autism does it naturally, um, and I'm wondering if it doesn't result in in the same outcome. But specifically, though, there was a study done on the brain looking at you know the stimulation that was happening in their brains at the time, and it was showing that it was likened to this state, this great I, state, it, and that's why they're not always present. I think um, it was in the, the parietal lobe in the brain yeah. is where that activity takes place where you sort of lose a sense of self and lose sense of time and, and an awareness, and you're just sort of focused in um, that state of of spirituality. It, and the reason I bring that up is so that we can make the leap to how many how many of these folks um, are telepathic, mm-hmm. how many of them are able to communicate without speaking, how many of them are able to communicate with animals and know what animals are saying. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing deceased grandparents mm-hmm. is not uncommon. What yeah. is it with the grandfather? I mean, those are some pretty far-out concepts, and I think that's a lot for people to swallow um, who haven't yet been introduced to those kinds of possibilities. But if you're presuming the intellect of the individual, mm-hmm. um, again, the slideshow that I do about this, um, I show uh, one of the, the myths about people with autism is that they're in their own little world. Um, and then the next slide I show is a Buddhist monk who is deep in meditation. Right, um, right. And then I say, okay, what's what's wrong with this picture here? You know, we have this, this stereotype of the person with autism in their own little world, uh, maybe because they don't speak or they spend absorbing amounts of time in silence, and yet here is someone of high religious standing doing the same thing. And then I cut to another slide of a little boy who is in a virtually identical position as the monk. He's got his hands raised up above his head. His his feet are, are pressed together on the floor, and there's actually these little um, little orbs of energy in the in the air around him as he's doing wow. that. Um, if we're presuming intellect, is there really a difference? Well, maybe we're presuming intellect with the wrong people. <laughs> well, you know, it's a curious thing, um, yeah. and and I know it's you know it's pretty far out there for a lot of people, but you know, it's the truth as I know it. I do see a wave, though, you know, that I do my other radio show, Quantum Radio, and and as a founder for the Institute for Quantum Living and Conscious Design, I do see a wave um, coming for people who are looking for their purpose and and spirituality, and so I think that that I'm going to assume um, that there is um, intellect to the people who are listening to the show and that they can make that leap. Well, you know, and I just saw something today. I just saw something today in the news about the U.S. military is looking for people who can read minds for yeah, some project well, they're go. working now on. We have a, now we have a half a million of them. <laughs> <laughs> the, the so only, if that yeah, makes the, it any more legitimate, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. Unfortunately, you know, they need – oh, that's what I wanted to talk to you about because I don't really understand that. Um, for, different forms of communication. What is facilitated communication? Why do you think it's so important? I think it's important, but it's also controversial um, because I think it's been so misunderstood and misinterpreted. Facilitated communication is about the relationship that you have with an individual, um, and it's a relationship of respect and unconditional love and support and a belief in their competence. And what it is, it's, it's a way of having someone be able to reveal the truth of their competence by providing as much or as little physical support as possible, either at the hand, at the wrist, at the elbow, at the shoulder, um, as that person touches down with uh, a finger to point to an object, a word on an index card, uh, a picture, or uh, a keyboard. And Mm -hmm. what I think people don't understand, and if you've ever seen it, it really looks like the person facilitating is moving that person's hand. And I think that's where the controversy comes in. But in reality, it should feel like arm wrestling because the facilitator is actually applying upward resistance. And you'll you'll know the difference, and I've felt it many times. That person, the person with autism, is really working to force their hand down 
to touch to whatever it is they're touching to. And in this method, people have been able to communicate their true thinking with the understanding that over time the physical support is faded. So I actually know people who now don't require any physical support. And so the facilitator, able- that, that facilitator, the person who's helping mm-hmm. guide the arm, is really like a seeing eye dog in a way. It could be likened to that. Is that they're, they're, they're an instrument to, to help. They're the conductor yeah. um, <laughs> through, which, through which the person is able to tap their self-confidence. And there's something about the touch and the relationship that really trips sort of an internal switch in the brain and gives them the capacity to um, articulate through the touch um, their true thinking. And where it gets controversial is that there have been studies that have disproven it. There have been court cases where there have been allegations of sexual abuse and other kinds of abuse. But there have also been um, nearly a dozen studies that have proven it, and people tend to um, not want to talk about that. So, we have a couple of callers. Mm-hmm. We have a couple Great. of callers. Um, 805. Eddie, I'll get to you in just a second. 805. Who's this? That's me. Oh, it is That's you. Oh, you came up twice, Eddie. You came up twice on my keyboard. Well, because How I've been you? trying to register for a half an hour. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Eddie Taduri, please meet William Stillman. Hello, How do you Eddie. Do? How do you well, do? Eddie, Eddie is, the, uh, is, is one of the, the creator of, of the rhythmic... Um, Rhythmic Arts Project. Mm. Rhythmic Arts Program, yeah. Okay, how are you? Everything's great, really great. This is a a wonderful program. It's so uh, good to hear you and uh, hear everything you've got to say. Aren't you uh, sweet? I really appreciate... uh, I've been taking notes. Oh, aren't you Uh, sweet? (laughs) There's there's just... There's so many things that that I'll... uh, I'm definitely going to get your books, and I hope that I can speak to you... uh, Again, at length, or maybe we could even meet because it, uh, I see that uh, there's just so much to learn from you. Always uh, presume intellect. I, yes. I always, with all my students, regardless of the uh, um, the challenge. You know, I've, I've I work with uh, the whole spectrum, and uh, not not just to autism, but uh, <clears throat> with all developmental disabilities and intellectual challenges mm-hmm. as well. And uh, just the things that you're saying to the parents and the things that, you know, these are the things that I try to uh, to say to encourage folks. And I'm, I'm just so uh, happy to listen to you uh, and, and learn more of the proper uh, terminology and and that you're telling people the, the vastness in this spectrum too uh, is really important rather than lump everyone into the same uh, diagnosis. Um, that they're, you know, I mean, Asperger's being so so much. There's, there's everyone is like a snowflake with autism. Yeah. To me. That yeah, there are there are so many. Different. Yeah, and and what I do know and what I do I always do presume uh, intellect and I work with everyone on that basis. And I know that they understand, regardless of, uh, of whether they are uh, uh, verbal. Uh, I know that uh, they comprehend everything, and they're frustrated because uh, sometimes they don't want to have to slow down for me to work with the other various uh, disabilities in my group. So, Well, I'll tell you, Eddie, I, I thank you for your very considerate and thoughtful observations. I also have known people who experience the frustration of which you speak to the point where they surrender and begin to reflect back what people project upon them so they're living up to the myths and the stereotypes because they've given up. I think the folks do give up and they, they, they're tired of being ignored. Mm-hmm. I mean, recently I talked to a friend over a cup of coffee and we, we discussed... Uh, I said, when is the last time, because he knows my work, he's, I said, when is the last time that you took a young man or a young lady with Down syndrome to the park and hung out all day and, you know, had to see what they had to say and interacted with them? And he said, well, of course, I, I, I've never done that. And a few weeks later, to make a long story short, he ran into a fellow with 
uh, cerebral palsy who was as brilliant as can be, but was unable to speak, was drooling, was contracted, and you know he had to speak with a board. Mm-hmm. But he walked up to the to this gentleman, and I happened to know him. He was in Santa Barbara. He walked up to him and he said, "How you doing?" And the guy spoke to him on the board and was just elated that someone would come by. And he came back to tell me about it, and he was glowing that you know that he did not ignore. He said, "I will never ignore." someone like this ever again. One of my friends with autism who also has Down syndrome and types because she doesn't speak said, Mm. um, people underestimate the value of silence. (laughs) I thought that was profound. And, you know, we're so concentrated on satiating the physical Mm -hmm. and gratifying our physical needs. And I think that there is just... a as you suggested, um, a vast universe um, of the cerebral and um, high thought and aesthetics that we dis- we disregard, that the person for whom the physical doesn't work um, and must spend absorbing amounts of time in silence um, has ready access to. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you, you, Sorry. you I, I mentioned... I love you before, the, the words, I love you. Dion, who is one of my favorite uh, gentlemen in the world, I've worked with him since uh, for over for about 12 years, 10, 11 years now. And he, uh, he was at a show where we had been playing for some people, and uh, a group of those people were uh, a grant, uh, people I had written a grant to. Make a long story short, we got off the, the stage. Dion is really uh, almost nonverbal. He has, says a few things. But uh, he he walked down, and I was talking to the woman about this grant, and she said, I've looked over your papers, and they look fine. This looks good. It's a great program. And Dion, just then Dion walked up, and I said, I'd like you to meet Dion. And Dion looked at me, and he hugged me, and he said, I love you. Mm-hmm. And he looked at her and smiled, and she started crying. She said, you, you can have the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. You know, That's great. I, the, uh, it's 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 really in the the spirit and in, in the uh, in the soul uh, where we find uh, the, this place where we can be together, and, and that's what I find in all my students. And that's what's I find most that important, place. right? That's I what's find really that place. important. Yeah, I mean, you and think they know going... they, they know that I that I know that you know. Well, I'm sorry, Frank, I don't mean to interrupt. No, it's okay. I just wanted to, to make this point that you say in your book um, that music is a necessary part of life that heals and soothes. It's a universal language, and it's extremely important to so many with autism, um, and it may be used to elicit discernible vocalizations through song in addition to reciprocation and relationships through the act of call and response. And that's what you do. Um, a lot of Eddie is that call and response with a drum, mm-hmm. I think. Well, I've I've known people with autism who couldn't speak but could sing beautifully and could oh, articulate too. language beautifully through the 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 magic that is the music. And you, wow. you were talking about empowering parents. We have a, a part of our program called the Parent Trap, and that is the complete program for parents to uh, to homeschool their children who might have autism. And uh, you're, I, I really believe in that, too. This, these hundreds of thousands of dollars people have to spend on therapy. I think most of these therapists are trying to empower the parents uh, anyway. So I don't Thanks want to take so up much. much of your time, but you don't have that. You're, you're almost yeah, done. Yeah, about here. six minutes remaining here. I want to get to, to one thing. You can feel free to stick around. But I want to, I want to ask you about um, this, this common, I guess, um, that's going around right now. Give your children vitamins. We can we can cure autism through vitamins, through food, through this and that. Mm-hmm. What do you have to say about that? Well, um, in my opinion, and in my experience, autism is a natural experience. It is not something that you medicate any more than I would give you a medication to make you say about instead of a boot. <laughs> You got me. Or any more than I would give someone medication to change their skin color or their eye color or their heritage. You don't give medication to someone who's born blind. Um, It's a natural way of being for that person. Um, I, I worry for the parents who are so caught up in 
wanting to fix and cure and recover and remediate, and what happens when your child doesn't meet those expectations. Um, we have had a number of incidences in this country, in the United States, where parents have murdered their children with autism because they thought it was the, the better alternative. What I think we can do in the context of loving, respectful, reciprocal relationships that presume intellect is to support people to tame and refine their experience when and where necessary. So what are they trying to cure, do you think, with these vitamins? What is it that they're saying to parents? What, what parents want is compliance. Oh. Parents want their children to present as outwardly typical. So and if so they we, don't have these rages and stuff, that's okay. That's better. Well, right, we talk about people tantruming, which I, I don't see that stuff as behavior. I think it's communication. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. My job as a, a consultant and an author and a presenter is to help people decode autistic hieroglyphics. I can read the language. I can read the hieroglyphics. Um, my job is to be the interpreter in helping people to understand this is not behavior for the sake of just tantruming. Um, this is legitimate communication. And, you know, it's like, as I said earlier, that Twilight Zone version of charades. Um, and Eddie was talking about people who, you know, uh, become so frustrated um, at other people not understanding, not taking the time to really listen. Um, that's my job, is to break that down for people and to help them look at their loved one through the autistic prism from, from the inside-out perspective. Eddie, you get a lot of hugs, I know that. <laughs> I look at your videos, and, and these kids, they adore you. They they just want to hug hug you. Um, those with autism, though, is it too much sensory for them to, to touch, to be touched? It it depends uh, on uh, on that space that uh, you create and how safe you make it and how believable you are because they they truly do understand and they're there. I mean, it may take – I've worked with some folks uh, for months and months, and I never uh, – if we're in a class and we're sitting and there's a semicircle and I ask one person one thing, I'll go to that next person and and ask the same things. And you know, I know that they're participating on their own level in their own way and they're understanding that. I don't think everyone gives them that respect. Mm-hmm. So I I would say that after a period of time, I've been able to get, uh, you know, in that space uh, where where the I can hug and and, uh, yeah, and actually touch great. touch them, which is you know. But but I understand why they they they. I think that uh, I don't know. Maybe William can. Can, uh, well, I just want to make sure that we've got two, million, two minutes left in the show, so I want to make sure, William, that people know how to reach you. Um, Thank you. Is it www.williamstillman.com? Is that correct? Yes. Um, it's www.williamstillman, S-T-I-L-L-M-A-N.com. That's my website. There's a lot of good, what I hope is good information. I think it's great um, information. That people can read about. There's a blog. There's um, over two dozen. Is there an email blogs. there? There is an email. Um, there's over two dozen articles that I've written um, that people can print out and use, including a document that I think is real valuable called Presuming Intellect. There's information about my books. There's um, links to other websites. There's a link to a free online autism magazine. So there's lots of things there that might be of interest to your listeners. Excellent. Okay. Um, I, I, we got one minute. William, is there anything that you want to tell the world, anything else that you want to say uh, to folks who are listening right now? We are all truly brothers of one another, and we are all more alike than we are different. So let's um, bridge that chasm that we've created, that we've distanced ourselves and our humanity, and realize that we are all kindred spirits of one another. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Wow. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you so much for being my guest this evening. It's been oh, William Stillman. It's um, been my great privilege. Thank you. I hope I've been you. of service to your listeners. Oh, I'm sure you've been of service to hundreds of thousands of listeners and, and parents and children. And, um, Eddie, thanks for calling in and, and, and 
you know, connecting with William. I think that you two will um, be brilliant together and have lots to talk about in the future. To everybody who has tuned in, it's Mission Unstoppable. I'm Coach Frankie Picasso. Thank you again for uh, tuning into my show. I'll be here next week um, at the same time and know that um, I love you for showing up. Thanks so much. And uh, to both of you, thanks again for, for uh, coming on the show. Take care. Thank you. Have a good evening, everyone. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello? Hi there. Hi. How's, thank you so much. Oh, my privilege. I, I really enjoyed it. It really flew by, didn't it? Did it ever. Did it ever. <laughs> yeah. So I think that was really good and, and um, actually being recorded still. So um, I'm going to write you an email, but thanks again so much. Okay. It was a really good show. You were okay, fabulous. Okay, terrific. Fabulous. Well, thank you for the forum. I appreciate it. No no worries. Anytime. Anytime. Uh, please. All right, Frankie. Any well, contact, take good okay? care. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Hello? Hello?